Thank you. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to the little book of Jude, second to the last book in your Bible, actually the third to the last if you have a concordance. Jude is the only book in the New Testament solely devoted to the subject of false teachers, which means that it's not the kind of book that we like to cuddle up with for devotional reading. And it's probably not a book that we point to for one of our favorite verses, and yet it's an especially important book because it describes the day in which we live. Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3, he said, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine, instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And in 2 Peter 2.1, we hear Peter say, there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And Jude, writing near the end of the first century, doesn't just say they're coming. He says they're here. Verse 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. The early days of the church are described in the Acts of the Apostles. The last days of the church are described in Jude, which some have referred to as the Acts of the Apostates. And we looked in verse 4 last week at Jude's description of these false teachers. And before we go on, I'd, I'd just like to briefly revisit a couple of things there. First of all, he tells us in verse 4 that they have crept in unnoticed. If we are going to earnestly contend for the faith, we are going to have to understand where the enemy is. And the enemy is in the church. 2 Peter 2.1, Peter said, There will also be false teachers among you. To the elders of the church at Ephesus, Paul gave this warning in Acts 20, 29. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. They rise up from within. And why are they not noticed? Well, Jesus gave us their attack plan in Matthew 7, 15. He said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. False teachers are wearing robes and smiles and standing in pulpits and opening Bibles and using pious words to spew out lies. And what is the nature of their message? Verse 4 tells us that too. It says, they turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. The grace of God is what transforms me. 2 Corinthians 5 says, I am a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. Romans chapter 6 says, it's the grace of God that takes me from being dead in sin to being alive to God. It takes me from being a, a servant to sin to being a servant to God. And so the result of grace is that out of my life should come good fruits, good works. And yet these individuals take the grace of God and they twist it in such a way that they produce licentiousness. And that word means unrestrained desires. 
Now, how do they do that? Well, we talked about it briefly last week, but let me give you two ways, and there are many. Let me give you two ways that they do this. Number one, they distort the standard of grace, and number two, they distort the principle of grace. First of all, they distort the standard of grace. If you look around today, there is real question about standards. There's a real kind of hazy line between what is right and wrong. And everybody has just kind of erased any absolutes. Most people operate on the basis of situation ethics. Right is defined as whatever is most loving and caring in a given situation. And wrong is defined as whatever is unloving in that same situation. That same mentality has moved into the church. Have you ever heard someone say, God is too good to punish sin. He's too loving to send anyone to hell. God forgives everyone. We are all the children of God. There are preachers everywhere preaching that message. I call it greasy grace. And why are they preaching that message? Because it seems logical. But the truth is that God has an absolute standard for right and wrong. And the truth is that God is not too good to punish sin. God is too good not to punish sin. He is a holy God. He is a perfect God. He is a just God. And He must punish sin. And if He's too good not to punish sin, then why did He allow His Son to be nailed to a cross to pay for our sins? God is just. But you can go to churches today, all around this country, you can go to churches in this very city, and they have twisted the standard. And that's popular preaching because it certainly tickles people's ears. I mean, if you can lower the standard, that kind of gets rid of my feeling of guilt if you can just drop the standard a few levels for me. And that's what happens. And what does it produce? Licentiousness. In the past few years, several denominations have sought to put together a church position on sexuality, which is kind of strange because God already has a position on sexuality. But uh, I came across one in, in 1991. The Human Sexuality Task Force for the Presbyterian Church USA presented their report to the denomination and here's a summary from the Presbyterian layman. The theme of the report is that Christian adults ought to be free to express themselves sexually without concern for limitations imposed by heterosexual marriage contracts and other cultural constraints. The report says a reformed Christian ethic of sexuality, which is what they're putting together, will not condemn any sexual relations in which there is genuine equality and mutual respect. While affirming that heterosexual marriage is a good thing for some people, the task force report repudiates it as a limiting factor in human sexual relationships. And here's an example of what they suggest. With the respect to the needs of older adults, the report says that the elderly should not be stigmatized as if they were asexual persons. The church should recognize their capacity for sexual expression and should encourage it. Older adult sexual activity should not be confined to heterosexual marriage re relations, and the church should encourage institutions like nursing homes to allow opportunity for sexual liaisons broadly conceived, including homosexual and extramarital sex. The, sh the church should encourage 
homosexual activity in nursing homes. With respect to adolescents, the task force majority refused to tell teenagers that they should refrain from engaging in premarital recreational sexual activity. Instead, the report encourages young people to practice the principles of justice love when they make their decisions regarding sexual relationships. What is justice love? Here it's defined. Justice love is that all people are entitled to equality, status, and self-fulfillment. Justice love says, I'm going to be satisfied. And that's the bottom line. Task Force member Michael Bullard, pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Twin Falls, Idaho, told the group, I am distraught over this. I wish we could find a way to say in a non-condemning, gentle, affirming manner that it is simply better for adolescents that they not have sexual intercourse. And so he proposed to add an amendment to the report that would say there is agreement on our task force that unmarried teenagers would do well to abstain from sexual intercourse. Now that's not the way Paul said it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he said, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. In other words, Paul said, stop it. But he says, well, we'll add this little addendum that says you would do well to abstain from sexual intercourse Bullard's motion drew immediate fire. Reverend Marvin Ellison, a primary author of the task force document, shot back, I think we need to claim the positive experience of Eros as something for everyone. You say, well, how did they come up with that? I mean, they must have just thrown the Bible right out of the room. Well, no, they didn't. Actually, they had their Bibles open, which is what makes this so deceptive. But here's what they said. They said, we used in our approach, a justice hermeneutic. We looked at Scripture through the perspective of a justice hermeneutic. And what is a justice hermeneutic? That's what we think is just. And they go on to say, we commend the following interpretive guidelines. Whatever in Scripture, tradition, reason, or experience, embodies genuine love and caring justice, that becomes authority for us. And whatever does not fit into that category, we throw out. And who defines what is love and what is justice? They do. Through the grid of God being a God who is too loving to ever punish sin. They distort the standard of grace, which really eliminates the need for grace and eliminates the need for the cross. You see, true grace doesn't lower the standard. True grace comes down and gets me and brings me up to the standard. True grace brings me and finds me in my sin and allows me to repent and gives me the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that I'm acceptable to God. That's the message of grace. And they've distorted the standard. Second thing they've done is they distort the principle of grace. How do you enter the kingdom of God? By repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. See, the principle of grace is that in order to find your life, you have to lose it. In order to be first, you have to be last. In order to be exalted, you have to be humble. In order to get up, you have to go down. But there are preachers today who twist that completely around. And there are preachers today who are saying that you need to move up. You need to boost your self-esteem. You need to have possibility thinking. And what does that do? Well, it tickles my ears because it strokes my pride. It makes me feel good. 
And what does it result in? Sin. Because anything that strokes my pride and puts me in the center is going to result in sin. In an interview in Time magazine, Robert Shuler said, I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ and under, under the banner of Christianity that is proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelism enterprise than the often crude, uncouth, and unchristian strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. It's unchristian to tell somebody that he's lost. That's funny. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15 that Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? Sinners. And Jesus himself said in Luke 5.32 that he came to call sinners to repentance. But Robert Shuler is saying, shh, don't tell anybody. Now what does he propose that we tell him? Well, here's what he says in his tape series, Possibility Thinking. You don't know what power you have within you. You make the world into anything you choose. Yes, you can make your world into whatever you want it to be. And in his book, Self-Esteem, The New Reformation, he said, a person is in hell when he has lost his self-esteem. But you see, he has twisted the whole message around. Because the truth is that the only way to escape hell is to lose your self-esteem and get Christ esteem. You see, I have to come to the end of myself and the beginning of Christ. That's where it starts. I have to humble myself, not exalt myself, to enter the kingdom of God. And then others have come along and they've just taken that a step further, which is not surprising. If you talk to people about building up themselves, then they're just going to keep building up themselves until they get to the top. Norman Grubb, who was a missionary in the Congo, helped found such organizations as Worldwide Evangelism Crusade, and InterVarsity Christian Fellowship now publishes a magazine entitled Union Life. Here's what he says he believes. What we call Union Life has only one foundation, the truth that there is only one person in the universe and everything and everybody is a manifestation of him in one of his millions of manifested forms. That is oneness. If everything is he in one form or another, negative or positive, then there is nothing in the universe but He, nothing but God exists. Now, if you decipher through that, what he's teaching is pantheism. God is everything and everything is God. Bill Volkman, the editor of Union Life magazine, wrote an article entitled Living as Gods Without Denying Our Humanity, and in it he said, All humans are incarnations of deity. And he spelled it out in an interview in Cornerstone magazine. He said, why do people constantly seek the will of God? Since I have seen this whole thing of union, I have no problem defining the will of man and the sovereignty of God. As far as I am concerned, they're exactly the same. And I no longer seek the will of God. You know, what does he want me to do? I say, what do I want to do? You see, instead of thy will be done, it is now my will be done. And we move right into the last statement he makes in verse 4. They deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And they're doing so by actually claiming that they themselves are God. False teachers are all around us. And so Jude is a pertinent book. 
And this morning, in the time we have remaining, I'd like for us to look at verses 5 to 7 together. Verse 5 begins, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all. Or Jude says, I want to remind you of something that you already know. Now, if you're a parent, you know how this works. You're always reminding your children of things, and they're always saying, I know you told me a million times. But we continue to tell them because we know that they need to know. And that's what Jude is doing here. He's saying, I'm telling you this. I know you already know it, but I want to remind you because you need to be reminded. Now, what Jude gives us here is not going to be new information. He's reminding us of some things we already know, and he's doing so for two reasons. Number one, so that we'll see that there's nothing new about people departing from the truth of God. It's something that goes back right to the beginning of creation. In fact, if you look down at verse 11, he tells us that Cain was the very first. And he's also telling us this because he wants us to see the big picture. He wants us to see the result of this false teaching. He wants us to see the judgment that comes from God as a result of it. And so in verses 5 to 7, he gives us three examples of people who turned away from the truth of God. The Jews, the angels, and the Gentiles. First of all, the Jews in verse 5. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. The children of Israel witnessed the plagues in Egypt... They came through the Red Sea on dry ground. They followed the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of cloud or pillar of fire by night. They had manna that came out of heaven to provide food for them. When they were thirsty, Moses struck the rock and out came water. And then they got to the border of the promised land and they sent the 12 spies in to check it out. And the 12 spies came back and said, It's everything God said. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. In fact, they brought back the fruit of it. Grapes, figs, pomegranates. But there were two conflicting messages. One message came from Joshua and Caleb. We must take possession of the land. The other message came from the ten spies who said, The walled cities are large and the people are strong and we look like grasshoppers in their sight. And which message did they believe? They believed the message of the ten spies. They listened to the false message, the message that said, turn back. And so in Numbers chapter 14, we read that the children of Israel wept and grumbled and said, I wish that we had died in Egypt. Let's elect a leader who will take us back there. And when Joshua and Caleb tried to talk them into going into the land, they actually said, let's get stones and stone them to death. And what happened to them? Well, Jude 5 says they were destroyed. Everyone 20 years and older died in the wilderness except for Joshua and Caleb. And Numbers 14, 37 tells us that 10 spies were killed by a plague immediately. Why? Jude 5 tells us. Because they did not believe. You say, well, were they lost eternally? Well, the word used in Jude 5 is a word that's used of perishing eternally. In fact, it's the word used in John 3.16, to perish. But it's also a word that's used in other places like Luke 15.17 when the prodigal son said, I am dying here of hunger. And so it's a word used of eternal destruction. It's also a word that's used of physical destruction. And the context really determines which we would use. We don't know from this context. However... We are told in Numbers 14 that Moses prayed for the forgiveness of the people and God forgave them. 
And we also know that among these people were the group of 72 elders upon whom the Spirit fell in Numbers 11. There were people in this group like Aaron's sister Miriam and like Feinhaus, who was later commended for his faithfulness in Numbers 25. And we really can't make entrance into the promised land the evidence of spiritual life because Moses and Aaron didn't even make it into the promised land. And so if you ask me, if you pin me down on this, I would have to say that this group punishment spoken of by Jude is a physical death rather than a spiritual death, but it really doesn't affect Jude's illustration because his illustration is that they turned away from the truth and they were destroyed. For them, that destruction was physical. Today, that destruction is spiritual. Second illustration is the angels in verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode... He is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, who are these angels who didn't keep their proper abode, their proper place, and are now in eternal bonds? Well, there are three views of who they are. Some people say this is an account unknown to us. It's, it's an account that we don't know anything about that happened maybe even before creation. These angels sinned and God put them in chains. But there's a problem with that. Because Jude is writing to us in verse 5, reminding us of things we already know. So he wouldn't be bringing in something that we don't know anything about. It has to be something that we know about already. And we don't know about this if it's an unknown account. So it has to be something we know about. Second suggestion is, or second view is, that it's the original fall of the angels with Lucifer, which is described in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. But there's a problem with that too. Because verse 6 says that these angels are bound. Are Satan and his angels bound? No. They're quite free. When Jesus was here, he was casting them out all the time. Revelation 22 tells us that in a future day, Satan will be bound, but he's not bound today. In fact, 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that he prowls around like a roaring lion. So this can't be the whole group of angels who fell with Lucifer because they're not bound. Which brings us to the third view, and the, third, the view that I hold, and that is that this is an incident that is recorded in the Old Testament. Now, before we go back looking for it, let's figure out what we're looking for. It says here in verse 6 that they left their proper place. Where did they go? Look at verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, same way as who? Same way as the angels in verse 6. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these angels, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, he mentions two here. One was homosexuality, gross immorality. The other was going after strange flesh or other flesh. Remember when the angels came to Sodom and Gomorrah to get Lot out? What did the people do? They wanted to have sexual intercourse with the angels. He tells us in verse 7 that Sodom and Gomorrah committed the same sin that the angels did. It's just the reverse. The people in Sodom and Gomorrah wanted to have sex with the angels. The sin of the angels in verse 6 is that they wanted to have sex with humans. You say, well, where is that in the Old Testament? Genesis chapter 6. 
Never heard the pages turn so fast. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came about, when men began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Now who are the sons of God? Well, they're angels. In Job chapter 2 and verse 1, we read, And again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. They're angels. In Job 38.7, we have a description of the scene at creation, and it says, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. See, we have to eliminate our New Testament mentality. We think of sons of God. We're the sons of God in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, the sons of God is a reference to angels. In fact, in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which was the common Bible in the first century, they translated this phrase, sons of God, as angels of God. And so when Jude read the Old Testament scriptures in the Greek language, that's what he read right here, angels of God. So the angels of God took on human bodies and they married human women. What's the result? Verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Then Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. What happened? Angels took on human bodies, which we find throughout Scripture. They cohabitated with women, and the result was these giants. Half angel, half man. You say, well, what happened to them? Well, if you read the rest of chapter 6, God destroyed them in the flood. That was one of the reasons God just said, I'm just wiping out everything. We're going to start over. And so what happened here in, in Genesis chapter 6, you say, well, wait a minute. I thought angels were sexless. Look, look at Matthew chapter 22. You say, well, isn't there a verse about that? Look at Matthew twenty-two thirty. 30. It says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, a lot of people come to that verse and they say, Aha, angels are sexless. That's not what it says. In fact, if you go to every reference where we see an angel in Scripture, they're always a male. Not sexless, they're a male. But it says here they don't marry. Well, look carefully at the verse. It says, You will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but you will be like angels where? In heaven. They don't marry in heaven. But see, these angels left their proper abode took on human bodies. See, angels are all men. They don't procreate. In heaven, there's nothing going on there. So they left their first domain. They took on human body, and they married women on the earth. You say, that's really strange. Uh, well, that's all right. I realize it's strange. But let me show you another passage. Let me just try to give you a little more insight into this. Look at 1 Peter chapter 8. 8, chapter 3, verse 18. 1 Peter 3, 18. For
For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. There's the gospel. The just died for the unjust, and he brings us to God. He doesn't lower the standard. Well, what happened there? It says, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus died physically on the cross. He didn't die spiritually. What did he do in his spirit? Well, look what it says in verse 19. In which, in his spirit, also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. He went in the spirit and he preached. Now that word preach doesn't, isn't the word for preaching the gospel. It's a word for proclaiming triumphant victory. Jesus went and he proclaimed victory over some spirits who were in prison. Now who are those spirits? Well, the word spirit when it's used by itself, is always a reference in Scripture to angels. In Luke 10, 20, Jesus said, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. In Hebrews chapter 1, and verse 14, describing angels, the writer says, They are all ministering spirits. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he went in his spirit to these angels who were in prison. Now, what angels are these? Look at verse 20 who once were disobedient. When? When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. When did it happen? When did these angels disobey? In the days of Noah, Genesis chapter 6. Can you imagine that scene? Jesus dies on the cross and all these guys are down in prison saying, yes, we're going to get out of here. And Jesus comes down and proclaims triumph over them. And you see allusions to that in Colossians and Ephesians, that he triumphed over them, led a procession of victory, announcing it before them. We'll come back to Jude. I know I haven't convinced all of you, but that's okay. Jude's second example is these angels. They were in their proper abode in heaven, but they weren't satisfied. They weren't satisfied. And so they decided they were going to seek fleshly lusts on earth, and now they are in eternal chains in darkness. But if you'll notice, they're only waiting for something. They're only experiencing the prelude to their real judgment that will come in a future day. Third example, the Gentiles, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? My Bible says gross immorality. It's a Greek word, porneo, from which we get pornography. It's a broad word. It's usually interpreted fornication in the King James. It means sexual sin of any kind. But this word is rather unique because it has in front of it the word ek. Ek porneo. Ek means out. And so what it means is sexual sin that is out of the natural realm. And that's exactly what their sin was because their sin was homosexuality. And God shows what he thinks about that here. Now, we've got churches today defining their sexual policy and saying we need to bring them in and put them in the pulpit and let them participate in that kind of activity within the church. The Bible makes it very clear what God thinks about that. And that was their sin. You say, well... How does he relate to this to false teacher? I mean, why, why, is he, why is he tying this in with false teachers? Because in verse 4 it says, they turn the grace of God into licentiousness 
In verse 8, it says they defile the flesh. In verse 10, it says they corrupt themselves as unreasoning animals. And in verse 16, it says they're following after their own lusts. They're in the same category. You say, well, how did Sodom... How can Sodom be an example of turning from the truth when they never had the truth? Well, they had the truth. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says they are without excuse because God has made it clear through his creation. But there's another way that we know that they got the truth of God. You know, in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 11, it tells us that Noah had a son named Shem who lived to be 600. As far as we can tell, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah took place 450 years after the flood. Shem was 98 when the flood came, so he lived 502 more years. So Shem was around when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. And everybody in Sodom and Gomorrah was either a great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson of Shem or they were a great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-uncle of Shem because they all came from Noah's family after they came off the ark. And I imagine that uh, he had some stories to tell about what it was like before the flood and why God had destroyed the earth and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah weren't listening to that. But not only that, we know that also they had Lot there. He was living in their city and he should have been their messenger as well. Well, we're almost out of time, but let me, let me take you just real quickly back to Genesis 19 for just a moment. Genesis 19 This is one of those chapters that uh, is rated R. And it's shocking in many ways. Genesis chapter 19 says, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now these angels didn't look however you imagine angels to be because back in verse 22 it tells us they were men. They looked like men, but there was something unique about them because we find here that Lot bowed down to them. He realized they were somebody special. And verse 2 tells us, he says, come on into our house. And they say, no, we'll spend the night in the square. Verse 3, yet he urged them strongly. In other words, Lot knew it wasn't a good idea to spend the night in the square in Sodom. No, you've got to come in our house. And so he brings them in and he prepares them a supper, verse 3. Verse 4 says, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have sexual relations with them. Two angels staying in Lot's house. The whole city surrounding the house because they want to have sexual relationships with these two angels. Verse 6, But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him. And he said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Please be good just this once. Verse 8, now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like, only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now, is that shocking? He comes out and says, I'll make a deal with you. I'll give you my two virgin daughters if you'll leave these guys alone. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you, tells you Lot's been in Sodom so long that he's thinking like the people of Sodom. He's got situation ethics as well. Then verse 9. But they said, stand aside. And the end of verse 9, they pressed against Lot. Verse 10, but the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. These are strong angels. They, these guys are all pressing against the door. They just push it open and pull him in. 
Verse 11, And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Now imagine that. These angels struck them blind, but they're so inflamed with lust that even in their blindness, they're still clawing for the door, trying to get in. Verse 12, Then the men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law? And your sons and your daughters, whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy it. Verse 14, And Lot went and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were going to marry his daughters, and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his son-in-laws to be jesting. God's going to bring judgment. He's finally preaching to somebody. And they say, you got to be kidding Verse 15, And when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. You ever hesitate? When God calls you to himself? I think we've all, all experienced that hesitation. Look what happens here. I love it. It says, So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out of the city. I love that. God calls me out of Sodom and Gomorrah into his grace, and we all experience that hesitation when he first calls us. Sometimes we struggle with it for a long time, and we see the compassion of God as he just takes us by the hand and leads us out into his grace. And then verse 24 of the chapter says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Verse 28 Abraham looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And Jude tells us in verse 7, it's an example of eternal fire. And I can't help as I read this, but think of the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 15 about those who rejected his message, and he said, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. There is a greater sin than that committed by Sodom and Gomorrah, and that is rejecting Christ with the light we have today. Well, there are the, the, the examples of Jude. Verse 5, the children of Israel didn't believe and were destroyed. Verse 6, the angels rebelled against God's purposes and are chained in darkness. And verse 7, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah followed their own lusts and were consumed with fire and brimstone. But then notice verse 8. It says, Yet, in the same manner, these men also. Have all those examples, and yet these false teachers have short memories because they are continuing to go down that same well-worn path to doom. And may God help us through our study of Jude, to be more aware that they're out there and to truly contend earnestly for the faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today and for this passage, which is very sobering in every way. And yet, Lord, we realize that you have entrusted us with the truth of your gospel. And there are many around, fueled by the enemy, who would like to turn that around. And Lord, I pray that we might rejoice in your salvation, but at the same time we might realize that we are called to earnestly contend for the faith. And Lord, I pray that we might truly protect it so that we might pass it on to others that they might know you as well. 
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.